Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, Colossians chapter 1. So glad you're here today. How many are the... um, the result of answered prayer. Okay, anybody here? Like somebody prayed for you a long time, and you were a little bit stubborn and coming to know the Lord, or maybe you already came, you knew the Lord, but you were a little bit stubborn and growing to know to know God. Uh, I know I had a, a praying mom and and dad, and for that I'm thankful, and I'm certain that both them and my praying grandparents had a lot to do with um, with who uh, I've turned out to be. If there <laughs> if there's any flaws, that's on me. Uh, all the goodness that comes from somewhere else that comes ultimately from God. And so uh, I want to just say, because Jesus came into my life, I'm a different person. For me, it was 1993. Anybody who's born after 1993? Raise your hand. All right. Oh, wow. Look at all these young people. All right. Well, (laughs) who can't do Matt? Yeah. Well, hopefully they know the year of their birth. It's 93 or after. Um, yeah, before uh, I was a really shy kid. I'm still a shy adult, but um, I felt God's call in my life, and that really changed the direction and the course of my life. And probably uh, I know there's many of you that God's done the exact same thing for, not in the sense of um, taking you from being shy to where you have to speak in public, but maybe um, in areas where you were living a certain way, living for yourself, and he he turned your life around. You began to live for him in a different way. I know several of you who have come out of lifestyles that are everything but Christian, and now uh, you're following Jesus, and uh, people who you once knew, they don't even recognize that you're the same person, except that your face looks similar to the old person. And so God can God can do a great thing in terms of transition. I want to look at a passage in Colossians this morning that has to do with a prayer that Paul has for the Colossian believers, believers that, as far as we can tell, at this point, he's never met in person. He's never met them in person, but he's heard about them. And because he's heard about them, he's inspired to pray for them. And he uses uh, a word for prayer that he uses both of him and the guy that led them to the Lord. He talks about how he's agonized over them in prayer. He wants to see God do something great. There is a lesson in what we're going to look at today about how to pray for people. But I think what we want to talk about is the goal of that prayer and that that goal is God's goal for every one of us. He wants to, He has a goal for every one of us. When we talk about the will of God, a lot of times uh, we tend to dwell on the differences of how God's called us in a different way from other people. But most of God's will is shared by all of us. Do you know that? Most of God's will is shared by all of us. Tell your neighbor, his will for you is a lot like his will for me. You guys aren't helping me. Only a few of you. It really is. It's, there's so much of God's will. You can't say if you're a Christian, well, God wants you to be loving and forgiving, but not me. Right? You can't say that because he wants us all to be loving and forgiving. That's part of God's will for us. Uh, You can't say, well, God wants you to pray unceasingly, but he doesn't want me to pray unceasingly because he knows how busy I am. Right? You can't say that because it says this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that that you pray without ceasing. So that's God's shared will for all of us. And I would suggest to you that a lot of times we focus upon this little narrow sliver of God's will that's individual, but there's a whole bunch of it that's shared with all of us. And that's what I want to preach about this morning and talk to you about this morning in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 9 through 14 with me. That's our, our focus today. And uh, uh, I don't know if you can highlight in the Bible that you're using. Don't use a highlighter in your hard copy Bible. I will be, I'll cringe if you do that. No, you can do that if you want. I'm just kidding. But if you have an electronic Bible, you can do this real easy if you're on version. You just hold down on the verse, then it asks for a highlight, okay? And so if you want to highlight verse uh, 9 with pink, pink for think, pink for think, okay? And then you can highlight verses 10 through 12, and you can't do this exactly because it doesn't let you break down different parts of the verse, but 10 through 
12. Blue for dew. Blue for dew. All right? Highlight it with blue for dew. And then verses 11, uh, excuse me, verses 13 and 14, green, because we're going to talk about what it means. All right? Everybody got that? Pink, blue, and green. That's how I did it up here. See that? All right. I just wanted you to see that. It's something I thought of this week that maybe it would help us to remember what we're looking at. But let's take a look here at these verses uh, 9 through 14. For this reason, the reason is that Paul's talking about is he's heard about their faith and, and how God's doing a work among them. So he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If I could tell you just for a moment, this is powerful. It may not seem like it, but it's powerful. There's a lot that's here, and we want to try to get to it before evening time. So let's get right into it. Uh, it's not God's will that we remain the same as we've always been. Would you agree with that? And, and yet, how much does he want us to change? Just a little bit? Or does he require and desire of us an entire overhaul? We're fixer-up projects from the get-go, aren't we? When we get saved, we, we're, we're starting down that road of sanctification. Sanctification means that God wants to make us holy. If, if you just want a, a better understanding of this, he's trying to reproduce the character of Christ in you. Okay, So that's God's goal for us. He wants to reproduce the character of Christ. And so we start off, and of course, a lot of times when we first start off, we're dealing with these external sins usually. And so stop stealing, you know, uh, stop with uh, promiscuity, stop with, uh, you know, being hateful to other people and saying rude things and gossiping. Okay, so sometimes that lingers on into further Christianhood, doesn't it? But we want to try to get rid of those things. And then we stop doing those external things. We feel really good. Man, I'm not doing those things anymore. I'm doing pretty good. But then what we realize is that there's some internal things that still have to be dealt with, some character issues, some attitudes that, that God wants to deal with. Do you realize in the, the Bible, God always punished people for two things, their actions, one, and their attitudes. It wasn't always the things they did. Sometimes it was the things they felt and the things that they believed that God had to draw out and discipline. And so he works on us and he perfects us. And he wants to do that in us. He wants to, through Christ, change us. And the change is not cheap. Uh, I hope you'll realize that the change that God is calling for in our lives comes at a great price. It comes through the blood of Christ. And, and uh, it's not a small change, but a great change. But here's the good news, because you might feel that I've just unloaded on us a heavy load. Like, how am I going to do all of this? Well, you're only going to cooperate in God's program. Remember, Philippians, I know this takes us out of our passage, but... Uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Then he talks about how uh, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Remember that? That's the heavy load that we feel resting on our shoulders. And then we read the next verse, and it says, For God is working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, he calls us to this big project, but he says, I'm going to help you to will it, in other words, to want to do it, and to accomplish it by giving you the power to act. That's God's way. So we have this great uh, calling to be changed, to be transformed. God says, I'm going to be a part of that. And it comes, so it comes with God's help, but we, we have to participate in it. What I hope will happen is that as we look at our passage today, we'll understand God's will more, uh, God's will for every Christian. And as I studied through this, this one word kept coming up. We don't see it so readily in English, it's there in Greek, um, but uh, we, this is the word all, it's P, 
A, it'd be P-A-S if we transliterate it from the Greek, P-A-S. And it, it means all. And it keeps coming up in several places in this passage. It's five times uh, just in the passage we've looked at, 38 times in all of, um, in all of Colossians. And it's the, it, it's the word all. Paul is concerned with the word all. The reason it's not always translated all in English is because our style of communication doesn't call for it. But you can see it. If you look through verse 9, if you look at verse 9, it says that he's going to uh, give us, through the Spirit, all wisdom and understanding. How much wisdom and understanding is the Spirit going to give us to do the will of God? All of it. He's going to give us all that's necessary. That doesn't mean that if you become a Christian, you're going to know everything there is to be a structural engineer or all that you'd want to know about science or biology or any of that, like becoming a Christian doesn't make you good at taking tests at school necessarily. But what he's talking about is in this sphere of following after him, he'll give us everything we need to know to do that. Aren't you thankful for that? That God can make us, uh, he can make us wise and he can give us understanding in terms of how to follow the Lord. How much? All of it. He gives us all that we need. In verse uh, 10, it says, so that we can please the Lord in every way. This is the same Greek word as the all. It could be translated for us that we could please the Lord in all ways. Okay? He wants us to be able in our life and all that we do for it to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, I just ask you, check that against our track record. How well have we done? Is there room for growth? Is there places where we could say of yesterday, man, I didn't please God perfectly with my day? And here's the challenge, and I'm not calling us to some kind of condemnation in this. I'm saying that this is God's goal, is to perfect us day by day, so that in all that we do, we can be pleasing to Him. Do you think it's possible? I do. I think it's possible with the help of the Holy Spirit, without coming under this condemnation. But I think as we surrender our lives more and more to Him, He's going to help us please Him in every way. Verse 10 uh, bearing fruit in every good work. Notice every. That's the same word as all. Okay, so once again, this uh, is coming up, this idea of of all. Okay, he wants us to please uh, bear fruit in every good work. He doesn't define what the good works are. I think a lot of that's going to come out in the day-to-day. It might be helping somebody who's in a particular area of need. It might be doing the right thing when uh, there is the temptation to compromise, but in everything, God wants us to bear fruit in our lives. And then verse 11, being strengthened with all power. Once again, all. There's a there's this idea that is coming through this prayer that it's to the maximum degree that God wants to help us to grow. This is Paul's prayer for these believers. I think it's God's intention for us that we continue to grow in him, Okay. I would ask you today, how many have been serving God for more than five years? Okay, you're not, you're not done. How many have been serving God for over 10 years? Okay, 20, keep your hand raised. 25, 30, 40 years, 50 years, 60, 90, anybody been serving God? No, all right, all hands went down at that. Uh, the point here is that God is still perfecting us till the day of Jesus Christ. He wants it to be thorough, thoroughgoing. He wants uh, the, the spirit and work of Christ to permeate our lives. And then he says in verse 11 that you may have, it says, great endurance and patience. But here, it's really, once again, all endurance and patience. This is God's will. So once you notice that that word is there, you start to see the common thread that in our lives, God is after everything. We were talking last week about how when Jesus comes to comes to the house, he knocks on the door. Okay, and uh, if your house is like my house, I'm telling tales out of school here, uh, that there are some rooms that we rather you not go in. Why? Because when we heard you were coming over, everything that was laying around went in that room. I'm not going to tell you which room it is. But uh, you know that when Jesus comes knocking, he knows where that room is, and he's going for it. He's like, this looks great. You've kept the place up. What about that room? Well, that's where my mess is. He wants to get in there, start to toss some stuff out. 
Anybody here, <laughs> you ever watch the show Hoarders? I don't, maybe you're a hoarder, and I don't want to offend you if that's the case. I feel like I've got that tendency, and then I watch the show Hoarders, and I'm ready to go throw a bunch of stuff away right after that. I'm like, oh, because the people on there make these excuses like they just cannot live without that little toy that their kid had 40 years ago. They can't get rid of it. They got old boxes and trash and stuff laying around, and the people trying to help them are just like being as gentle as possible. You're going to be able to survive without that milk carton. And they're like, I can't do it. I can't throw it away. This is all too much. And I know that it's sad, but that's the way we are sometimes. Jesus comes knocking, and he wants to deal with some stuff. And we're like, not that room, Lord. But that's where he wants to go. He wants to get into all of it. And in return, we should offer everything to him. Now, uh, now in this moment of the message is not the time for distraction. Um, please pay attention. This might be too radical if we really want to have our nice suburban-type lives where we add Jesus on Sunday and a sprinkle of him through the week. But that's not Christianity. Are you with me? In the New Testament, it's not Christianity to plug in an hour or two on Sunday morning. I mean, we're really challenging <laughs> the people's discipleship because we, we meet for two hours. But he wants more than that, you know. I don't mean longer services either. And he wants more than just a sprinkle throughout the week. He really deserves all. And so some people have put Jesus in the category of some, and then some in the more, and then there's others who have given him all. And that's what he's after is the all. I'm not asking you to put your house on the market and move to the mission field, but I think it'd be first best to ask, God, how can um, I give more of myself to you? Ask him for more of himself for you. Okay, you know what I mean? Lord, I want more of you. That's a good prayer. But do you know the answer to that prayer often is, Lord, I'm giving more of myself to you? Like we can have as much of God as we will allow. Are you following that? That God's not somehow holding us at bay and saying, I'm hiding myself from you. The whole purpose of the Bible, the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit, the whole purpose of Jesus coming is to make God known. He's not hiding. He's welcoming us in. He's bringing us close to himself. Ask him, how can you give more of yourself to him? I think that's the secret of having more of God is giving him more of yourself. <clears throat> the people that this is first written to, this uh, letter in Colossians, are people who lived in a world with a community that most of them didn't know Jesus. They had relationships with family members who made it hard to follow Jesus. They lived in a culture that was dealing with idolatry all around. There were frustrations. There were joys. People, there are people just like us. Uh, I think sometimes we, we strip away the layers of what people were like back then, like it was so much easier for them to turn to Jesus and serve him with all. They're people just like us with complicated lives. Okay? And when Jesus comes in, He's asking of them all, and as Paul is praying for them, he's praying that these Colossian believers will come to know him more and more, to know his will more, to give more of their lives to him, to experience the fullness of what salvation means. They were people for whom following Christ had a price tag in the family, in the city, financially. Um, I don't know if you thought about this, but a lot of the early Christians, because they worked in the marketplace, if they followed Christ, people would boycott their little market stand because they were Christians, and they were considered to be people who brought bad luck on the city by denying the other gods. And so there was a financial cost that came with following Jesus. And so we, we tend to forget all of that, and following Christ for us is relatively easy compared to, to that Part of the problem that happened in Colossae is that they, they, there were many people or there was a segment of the church that wanted to divide up their spirituality and 
and put it in different baskets. They wanted to diversify their spiritual holdings, not putting all of their spiritual eggs in one basket. And, and so they developed this elaborate scaffolding of intermediaries that held up and supported their spirituality. And so we don't pray necessarily straight to Jesus, but we go through this level of angels and then finally get to him and then he to the Father and so on. And uh, what Paul wants to come in here and do throughout this letter, and I've been trying to emphasize that this morning, is he wants them to know that Jesus is all they need. He's their, he's their all. He's what they need, and not all of this other stuff. Okay? And we can sometimes do that with the best intentions. I've got to have my Jesus and this particular brand of worship music if I'm really going to get into the presence of God. And I want you to know that long before those people ever dreamed of writing those worship songs, people were getting into the presence of God because of Jesus. We've got to have our American politics and our makeup and our, our particular freedoms in order to follow God. Those are all grand, and we love them, and we're privileged to have them. But people have been serving God without them for 2,000 years. Are you with me? That we sometimes set up Jesus plus all of this. He's given us all, and we need to give him our all and put our full confidence in him. So as I said, it's not the point of what we're talking about, but if you want to know how to pray for people who are Christians, this is a great model. Pray that they'll know how God wants them to live. First, I want to point out here the desire that Paul has, and this is the desire for every believer. I think this is God's will for every believer as he prays this prayer. It's come down to us now, these 2,000 years through this letter. It's true of us that God wants us to be spiritually intelligent. Okay, Spiritually intelligent, verse 9. And as, as I was studying this, I came across this in Warren Wiersbe's writings, and it hit me like a bolt of lightning, that God wants us to be spiritually intelligent. Not spiritually naive, not where we're kind of wandering around, feeling our way through intuition in the things of God. He can show us how to live wisely in our day. He can give us the intelligence and the information that we need to succeed even in these changing times. There's this little, I don't know if you've read through the phone books of the Old Testament where they mention name after name and generation after generation. And one of the chronicles, as it's laying out those different generations, it says, then there were this many people who were the men of Issachar. Do you remember this? They knew their times and they knew what to do. They were spiritually intelligent. And God wants us to be spiritually intelligent. What is meant by that? Well, if you look at verse 9, you can see that he says, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God uh, to fill you with the knowledge of his will. To fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So what's meant by spiritual intelligence? It means to know God's will. And what is God's will? We sometimes make that a... It's kind of a nebulous thing that's out there, like God's will is something that's like uh, an individual plan for us. Well, that's part of it, but what God's will is, is this is what God desires. Okay, just plain and simple. What does God desire? What does God want for you and me? That's a question, isn't it? What does he want? What does he desire for humanity? What's, what's his desire for the Christian? What does he he want to happen in specific situations. And I would suggest to you that, as, as we said earlier, most of God's will is not a mystery. Okay? We, we want to pray and we want to ask God, God, would you reveal your will to us? And, and what we generally mean is that slim segment. I'm going to just enumerate. I don't know what the proper number is on this, but I would suggest to you probably over 90% of God's will we know. Okay? We know his will. We know what his desires and intentions are. Right, what are some of them? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't uh, delight in the death of the wicked. He wants to see people saved. He wants to see us live holy lives, right? He wants to see his kingdom come in a powerful way. Uh, he wants to see the spirit poured out upon all flesh. We can see from the scriptures what his will is. There's a, there's a sliver of it we don't know that's individualized. Like, God, do you want me to live here or there? Do you want me to do this or that? Do you want me to marry this person or that person? Should I take this job or that job? That's a small sliver. Now, it doesn't mean it's unimportant. It's very important. 
But that's really a small part of God's will. Most of God's will is how he wants us to live, what he's doing in the world, where his story is going. That's his will. We focus on that sliver so often. But most of it's not a mystery. A lot of people, they spend all of their time focusing on the 10%, which has to do with personal things. And some of those things are not even of eternal value, like should I live here or there or buy this house or that house? Well, it might have ripple effect, but you know when you're in heaven, you're not going to be worried about what house you lived in. Are you with me on that? That's not going to have mattered so much in light of everything. Maybe God leads you in a direction because he knows that you need to reach this particular neighbor for the Lord, and that person's going to have a ripple effect for the kingdom. But sometimes we focus on temporal things when we should be focusing on the eternal thing. And, and those things, as I said, have their place. But but let's be careful to know that there is a lot of God's will that we already know. And so it's not always about even knowing the will of God as much as understanding his will alongside priorities. I'm going to pass on some of this, but let me just say that sometimes there are two things that are part of God's will, but they can't happen at the same time. For example, let me give you an example. Right now, I, re- I really want to preach this message. I also want to eat lunch right now, okay? But because one desire is stronger and more important than the other desire, I'm not going to have lunch right now. I'm going to preach the message. Do you understand what I mean by that? That one thing becomes more important priority than another thing. And I hope you're thinking, too, that even though you want to eat lunch right now, listen to this message is what you really want to do. And so you're not thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. You're thinking about this, I hope. From the response, I wonder. And so you can see that God has a plan. He has a will for our lives. But sometimes one thing has to give way to another. Spiritual intelligence is knowing God's will through wisdom and understanding the proper priorities. Um, An example of this from Scripture would be the Apostle Paul, who uh, tells us in 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, I think it is, right in there, where it says that, uh, and I think that you could probably uh, surmise from the Scriptures that it's not God's will that His people would be under constant attack from the enemy. Okay? I don't know. Maybe you could make a case that there's places for that. I don't think God likes to see His people harassed by the devil. Would you agree? Nobody wants to say yes to that. I don't think he does. But then we see Paul praying it, asking God to deliver him from a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And uh, the Lord says, my grace is enough. The reason is because the Bible says that what God wants more in that moment is for Paul not to get proud, to be humble. And so this is serving a purpose. And so although it's not his direct desire that that he be harassed, He's allowing it because God wants something of a greater priority at that moment. And so sometimes the will of God can be uh, tricky from our perspective to discern, but God can give us the ability to do that very thing. Spiritual intelligence is knowing God's will through wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. Um, Let me give you an example from the life of Abraham. Abraham uh, heard the word from the Lord that I'll make you a father of many nations. Even before he had kids, God changed his name from Abram, which means something like prince-like, to Abraham, which means what? Father of nations, right? Okay. And so he's got this new name, no children, and finally the promise comes, Isaac's born. And then he knows that God has a plan in Isaac to make him the father of many nations, and through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And So he knows that. by faith, holds on to that. And then the word comes. Lord uh, tells him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I'll show you. So what does Abraham do? Abraham, one thing you notice about him is uh, every time God calls him to do something, he gets up early and does it. Like the next day. He hears in the night, he gets up early in the next day. Maybe he was getting up early to get away before Sarah asked him where they were going. But we know he's on his way, and he gets up to the mountain, and he's ready to sacrifice Isaac. And in the last moment, he's spared. 
And Hebrews 11 tells us that he offered his son knowing that even if he had to, God would bring him back from the dead because he so discerned that the will of God was that through this child, the nations would be blessed. So he had enough faith that even if he killed him, God would raise him from the dead. You see, he discerned the will of God, and it helped him to act intelligently when he didn't understand how these details worked together. So um, when we read this, look at the verse again with me. It says that uh, may God fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. Uh, You realize that this doesn't mean that the Spirit just gives this apart from the Bible. The Spirit is the author of Scripture. We find out in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the Scripture is wisdom from God. And so I think Paul assumes here that these people will have the Scriptures, and they're definitely going to have this letter that's teaching them how they should live as Christians. So he's not setting up some kind of dichotomy between the Spirit and Scripture. And the only reason I'm saying this is because there is a segment within the church that wants to separate the two, and act as if the Spirit does one thing and the Scripture does another. If you want to be truly spiritual, don't listen to the Scripture. Listen to the Spirit. And I want to challenge you, church, that it's not one or the other. It's both. The Spirit speaks through the Scripture, and the Spirit doesn't contradict the Scripture. We listen to the Scripture, and we listen to the Spirit in the Scripture. And He applies the Scripture to our situation so that we can live wisely in our world. We need His help to be spiritually intelligent. So it's not one or the other, it's both. He wants us to know, God wants us to know his will. He wants us to be spiritually intelligent. When it says through wisdom and understanding, there's no sharp difference in meaning between the two. This is a way of coming together and bringing about the whole scope of spiritual knowledge. So what he's saying is the spirit will cause you to have wisdom and understanding, and that will cause you to be full of the the knowledge of the will of God. So it's something that the Spirit helps us to apply to our life. So what this means is that through the Spirit of God, we can know God's will. And not just know it, but we can, we can know it more fully. And I, I don't mean that we've got to get weird about it. Some people want to take this to an extreme, like they're praying over whether they should have Cocoa Puffs or Wheaties in the morning. When the choice is obvious, it's Wheaties the breakfast of champions. We don't have to be ridiculous like that. There's a lot of God's will where there's freedom for us to choose within that. He doesn't confine us to be robotic where we have to respond in every little decision that we make. It's good to pray about things and offer ourselves. But what I found is that if you'll do the things of God's will that you know, he will guide you into the things you don't yet know. Are you hearing me on that? That we sometimes think we're going to have to fast for 40 days before we can know the will of God. If you'll do the will of God that you know, he's always calling people in the midst of life. You notice that? Where was David when he was called? Tending the sheep, writing worship songs, obeying his father. Kids, you want the blessing of God? Obey your parents. God might speak to you, and he might really speak to you if you don't obey your parents. You know what I mean? He shouts with a megaphone at times. Um, but he was in the middle of life. Moses was in the middle of life, in a way, wandering on the backside of the desert, and God meets him at the burning bush. So if, and I don't, I can't argue for Moses' story if he was doing the will of God at that moment. What I'd suggest to you is that if you do the will of God and have a listening ear, God will, he knows where to find you. And he knows how to speak your language, and he knows how to get your attention, and he knows how to call you if you're an obedient heart to do what he needs you to do. So he can find you for his will if he finds you willing. Okay. Um, there are many things which uh, are not laws or rules that are part of the will of God that we need the Spirit of God to reveal to us. But we want, God wants us to be, uh, he wants us to be spiritually intelligent, to have spiritual intelligence. The second thing is he wants us to be morally excellent. Look at verses 10 through 12, and we'll go through this a little bit quicker. Okay, so notice uh, that the reason is, if you go to the end of verse 9, it says that uh, he wants to fill you, not just a little bit, but fill you up with the knowledge of his will through all 
wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Notice verse 10, so that. This is a causative relation here. So that, in order that. It's telling us the reason that he wants us to know his will is for this. He wants us to know his will for this, okay? The so that is important in telling us this is the reason, okay? To know his will so that you can live a life worthy of the Lord, okay? Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in some ways, every way, always, P-A-S. It's all. He wants us to please him in all ways. That's the reason we need to know the will of God is so that we can live morally excellent. He's going to tell us what those things are, but uh, it talks here about living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing. And these two combine to show the certain kind of life is the right response to God. We know God's will so that we can live worthy and pleasing lives before him. Uh, him being worthy means that our lives, because of his greatness, because of his sacrifice, because of who he is, our lives need to measure up to that. Anybody have a parent that said, that's not how we act in this family? Okay, I, I did. That's not what we do. My dad, I never, in all the years that I knew him, I never heard him say a swear word one time. One time, I was playing basketball and I went up, and we had the lowered rim so we could feel like superstars. And you could dunk the basketball. And I said something like slam or something. He thought I said another word. And he said, what did you say? And I said, I said slam, Dad, slam. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? Okay. Uh, he said, that's not how we talk in this family. And I remember uh, thinking about that and thinking about that now that in relation to our, our call to be sons and daughters of God, there's a certain way we need to live. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with that so much. It has to do with being the kind of people that imitate our Father. Are you with me on that? And so to live a life worthy of the calling is to recognize we can't do this, first of all, on our own. We've never been able to do this on our own. We needed God's help. But he's called us to live worthy. And the word worthy here is a Greek word that means something like weight in the scales. Axios is the word. And so uh, in the old school scales, nowadays you pop on your little scale and it tells you your weight and all of that. In the old scales, you had to put something in one side and then you found out whether the other side measured up to it. Okay? Have you seen those? The old balance scales? And that was a common thing in the marketplace to make sure you gave enough silver or, or whatever. Um, and so when it says worthy, what it's saying is all that God has accomplished knew he is on one side, and we have to cause our lives with his help to live up to that calling. Not necessarily live up to him, because who can measure exactly up to him, but live up to the, the calling that we've received in him. Let your lives be worthy of the calling that you've received here, and that it may please him in every way. He wants us to please God in every way. This, this is the morally excellent life, is a life that's worthy of him, and we're, we're trying to measure up, not in a way that brings us this condemnation, but in a way that says, Lord, you're worthy of this right behavior. Okay? Sometimes we feel like God owes us if we've been really good for a while, but we can get away with a little sin here because we've been so good for so long and so... I think I deserve a day off. Nobody here thinks like that, but I'm telling you, there are people that think like that. Okay? Is there ever a place where we can, like, pay God back so much that we get a day off? We get a little ahead of him? Like, I'm going to back off a little bit, God, because I've been too good. We never get to that place. And so we're, we are constantly measuring up, but not in a way that says, I'm earning my salvation. Never that way. This isn't a way of saying, Lord, because you've done so much for me, this is, this is me responding back to you with a life that's worthy of that. Okay, and so, and then pleasing is the second one, and this means to do something which produces satisfaction, that God can smile upon the way you live. Okay, I think there's um, uh, understanding and distinction that needs to be made here. One is that when we come to Christ positionally, he sees us as holy because of what Christ has done. 
We might come smelling like sin, but because we've come in Christ, he sees us as holy positionally. You with me? Then practically what needs to happen is now that he said, I'm setting you here at the table like a son or a daughter, that we need to start to live up practically to that place. See, it's, it's, I'm already granting you status. Now live up to that status. Like Abraham, I'm already calling you father of many nations. Now I'm going to bring you up to that. Okay, I'm already calling you saints, Corinthians. But now you need to learn to live up to that and be holy like saints. And so God grants us ahead of time grace for a status. But then he says, now I want you to live up to that. I think it's a beautiful calling, but it also be, ought to be a compelling calling. And it's what pleases him. He mentions four things. And these, these all are ways that we live to please God. These four things. Notice them. And I've got to go quick on these. But he says to please God in every way. And then he mentions these four statements. Okay, The first one is bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, We need to be people who are bearing fruit. That doesn't mean that every day you're getting somebody else saved. That's wonderful. But the fruit probably has to do more with your character and that it coming out, not just as an attitude, but coming out in the things that we do. Okay, Your spirituality doesn't stop in your heart. Heart turns to behavior. Okay, So the second thing is that we ought to be growing in the knowledge of God. This pleases him. How do you do that? How do you grow in the knowledge of God? Well, one, th- one way I did it is I got around people who knew God. And the other way I did is I got in my Bible and read and learned how God interacts with people throughout history and his people and what he specifically said and how he revealed himself. And then also spent time with God in prayer. You grow in knowledge of God practically, intellectually, spiritually as you get close to his people. And then notice this next one. This one I, I fear we won't like as much. Patiently enduring through his strength. Notice how it says this here. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Okay, the word strengthened there is similar. It's kind of the same word as power. So it could be something like this. Being empowered by his power. That's how it would sound in Greek. Being empowered by his power. In order that we might have great, once again, that's all, all endurance and patience. So these two words coupled together, endurance and patience, mean something like bearing up under difficulty, continuing in, the spite, in spite of hardship and pushback. Because in your Christian life, there's going to be days that you don't feel like it. When we were worshiping this morning and uh, Kiki came up and gave the um, call to worship, it made me th- think about something. I know I- I'm very internal focused a lot in terms of how I feel. Is anybody else like that? You'd be willing to admit that? You know how you feel right now? How many? How you feel at any particular moment is a big deal to you? Anybody? You don't want to raise your hand because you're afraid of what I'm going to say. I'm admitting it's true for me. Okay, How I feel at any particular moment matters to me. But when it comes to worship, what do our feelings have to do with it? God is still great. It doesn't change if we don't feel like he's great. He's still great. And so I, I think that's the perfect call, and that's why I often give that call to worship is because I know how I feel. If I base my faith on my feelings, I wouldn't be a very good Christian. And sometimes, sadly, I do. How about you? What this is saying here is that we're strengthened with all the strength that God can give. We don't do it on our own. We don't endure by our own grit. We don't have true grit on our own. We get grit because God's spirit and his power resides within us. And he helps us to endure and overcome. And so this is part of what pleases God. A life that pleases God is an enduring life that says, despite this difficulty, God's still good. I'm still going to worship him and live for him and do the right thing. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to concede to the pressure of family and culture and friends to live a different life. I'm going to live for God. That pleases him. And then... Giving joyful thanks thanks to the Father. I'm so glad that there's that little adverb there. You know what adverbs do? They modify verbs. They tell us how to do the verb. Okay? Giving thanks is the verb. Okay? But you can give thanks grudgingly. 
You've seen it in little kids, haven't you? Tell them thank you. Thank you. (laughs) They don't want to say it. (laughs) For whatever reason, we have to be taught to do that. But here, the adverb is joyfully. We've got to give things joyfully. How do you compel that? Well, that's something that we have to learn to do, and he's going to give us some reasons in just a moment as we think further into why we ought to live this way as Christians. So we live morally excellent lives based upon what Christ has done, based upon his help, but there's things that we have to do in response to him. Uh, Like growing in the knowledge of God doesn't just happen by accident. It happens in cooperation. Uh, being fruitful in every good work doesn't happen by accident. It happens that because we said we want to live right. I don't feel like being nice to this person, but I'm going to because God loves them. And I don't feel like enduring, but I'm going to press on because it matters. It matters to God, first of all. It matters to my friends and the church and the people around me and my kids that I continue to follow God faithfully. And I'm going to give thanks joyfully because of all that Christ has done. So we we have to participate in it, but it's with God's help. And then finally here, I'd like you to notice that God's will for us is to live, change lives that are relationally consistent. Relationally consistent. Like it's consistent with the fact that you have this relationship. Okay. Uh, the second part of verses 12 through 14, it focuses on the relationship to the Father and the Son. If you, you notice a very personal thing is taking place in here. Look at what it says in the second part of verse 12. Uh, it says, well, yeah, verse 12. It says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In whom, the Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So all of this now is relational. God has not called you to believe a creed only. Amen. He's called you to trust a person, a loving heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust Him. We live in Him, and it makes a difference. It changes us. And so this is relational, and and I would like you to notice all of this is relational. It's, It's prayer to God to make this position Uh, this possible in verse 9. We ask God to fill you, the Spirit give you. It's uh, for God that we live in verse 10. It's about God that we learn in verse 10. It's by His strength that we persist in verse 11. It's in Him that we're saved in verses 12 through 14. And these are the verses that I want to unpack for just the next couple minutes here. Notice that God has, in verse 12, qualified us to be His people, qualified us. You might not feel at times like you're a very good Christian. I know I don't at times feel like a very good Christian. And sometimes we may even wonder when we come to worship if we maybe we failed God in a particular way or we let ourselves down or disappointed ourselves. We might have come to that place. We wonder what right do we have to stand here before him as a worshiper. And listen, it says that he qualified us, He qualified us. Yeah, praise the Lord. He qualified us to be a part of his holy people. God has also rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Look at verse 13 here. It says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So now he's qualified us to be a part of his people. This is particularly relevant because where Colossae is, it's in what's known as the Lycus Valley in present-day Turkey and the cities around it, you can see it. We've, we went to Turkey about three years ago, and there's nothing in Colossae anymore. It's just a mound. Uh, there's a few ruins that are buried in the ground there. But from that spot, you can see another city that's referred to in Scripture called Hierapolis, and you can see another city that's well-known called Laodicea. And they all stand in the Lycus Valley there, and most of it's Gentile. And so what would have been particularly relevant to them and to us is that he's saying that God has qualified us to be a part of his holy people. We don't have to be Christian, second-class Christians, because we're Gentile. We're a part of the people of God. I'm thankful for that. He's qualified us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In verse 13, 
Uh, if you have the King James Version there, it says he's rescued you, something like uh, saved us or rescued us or freed us from the power of darkness. Uh, the word there doesn't mean power like as in the power of God. It means dominion, the sphere in which power is exercised, a state of control over something or some uh, someone. Uh, so this dominion is a realm of sin or evil. And uh, one uh, resource on this says that this suggests that it's spiritual darkness or sin, that he's rescued us from that dominion. Notice the contrast here, dominion and then kingdom, the kingdom of his son. He's taken us out of a dominion, okay? And that dominion is where Satan rules, where sin is prevalent, the place where we last had our bondage, he's taken us out of that. He's rescued us from that. And he's placed us in the kingdom of his dear son. And so when he says he's breaking, he's brought us free from the dominion, it's like when, when God sent Moses to Egypt and said, tell Pharaoh, let my people go, okay, that they may come out and worship me in a place that I'll show them. So Pharaoh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and after a series of events, brings the people of Israel out of a dominion. Are you with me? Okay, and that's what he's done for us too. We're no longer, if we're trusting in Christ under the dominion of darkness, we're in the kingdom of his dear son. Notice it says the third thing that happens is he brought us into the kingdom of his son. I don't, I don't care necessarily for the way the NIV translates this. Brought us into seems kind of um, pale, transferred. The Christian Standard Bible says transferred. And the definition behind this word is to transfer from one place to another, to remove, to take out of one uh, dominion and place us in the kingdom of another. So a transaction takes place there. I'm almost done. Hold with me for just a couple more minutes here. A transaction has taken place in which you've shifted your loyalties from one sovereign state to another. Are you with me? You've been taken out of a dominion, and you've been placed in a kingdom. We're not under the dominion of darkness anymore. You're free in Jesus. You're free. That's a transaction that's worth celebrating. And that's why he says we give thanks to the Father because of this very thing, that we're not in that dominion anymore. Sometimes we like to hang on to that and say, well, that dominion still has a hold on us. It doesn't. We're free in Christ. He's brought us out of dominion. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. The kingdom is the royal reign of God. The area or district ruled by a king. Who's our king? It is Jesus, of course. And it's the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, it says, we have redemption. He He bought us out of our old bondage. In him, we have forgiveness. He doesn't hold on to the... um, the guilt of past sins against us anymore. This is atonement. This is what happens in union with Christ. It's ours because of Christ, but only ours in Christ. Okay, you understand that this isn't this is available for everyone, but not everybody partakes of it because not everybody's in Christ. You get in Christ by trusting in Christ and considering yourselves dead to yourself and alive in Christ. Okay? You're enfranchised into him because of his sacrifice and your faith. Lord, it's no longer I, but it's you who live in me. It's an exchange that takes place. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. It's Christ who now gets to live through you. It's the kind of surrender that lays down all of the fighting weapons and defensive weapons against God and says, I'm not fighting against you anymore. You win. And letting him have his way. And wouldn't you know, he's a benevolent king. He's a benevolent conqueror. If he conquers your soul, you're better for it. Amen. Well, he qualified us to be his holy people. So this is atonement. This is ours in union with Christ. It means that by faith, we have all the benefits of salvation. And since this massive change has taken place, it's relational. We live out that change. If you're qualified to be God's holy people... Be holy. If you're rescued from the dominion of darkness, don't submit to its authority anymore. If you're brought into the kingdom of the Son, live as his subject. If you're redeemed, don't go back to slavery. If you're forgiven, don't keep on sinning in the same ways. 
It's amazing to me that before the Spirit was poured out, Jesus could say, go and sin no more. That's amazing to me. And yet, we have the Spirit, and so many times we say, well, I just can't quit sinning. Well, we don't want to quit. Or we do want to quit, but not bad enough. Right? I mean, is God powerful enough to help us be holy or not? I know that puts the blame or the responsibility on us, but I can't put it on God. Who else are we going to put it on? Our parents? Well, our parents weren't perfect, but when it comes down to it, each person bears the responsibility for their own decisions before God. But he helps us out. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He calls us into the light of the Lord, and he helps us to live holy lives. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's first name is? It's holy. It makes us holy. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's last name is the Spirit of Holiness. Holiness. He makes us holy. And this is relationally consistent living. It's not consistent to live in relationship with God and not to know His will and do His will. To live according to all the benefits that He's passed on us and say, well, in light of those benefits, I'm going to keep on living my old way. That's not consistent with the relationship that we have with God. So we have to be relationally consistent. Understanding this helps us to appreciate what it is that God's done for us. We might enter through simple belief. I mean, all you have to know um, is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and, and put your faith in him. And you can be saved and the Holy Spirit can begin the work of regeneration and uh, uh, sanctification in our lives and, and uh, bring us to a place where we're further along with him. Uh, there's simplicity in this statement. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't there? And so we just call on the name of the Lord. But, you know, if we're going to live the kind of lives God wants us to and, and be spiritually intelligent, for one, there's some things we need to know. And that's what Paul is pouring out for us here is these things. You know, if you've ever prepared a meal for somebody and you just said, come and eat, your kids can come roaring in, pile onto the table and eat that meal and be benefited by the nutrition that you provided. Is that right? They don't have to know all the other stuff that's taken place up to that point. You can look at it from a lot of different perspectives. You can look at it from a farming perspective of all that it took to get those vegetables to the place where they could be on your table. And there's a lot to it, the planter and the harvest and the fertilizing and the plowing and all that takes place on the farm and, and uh, finally bringing it to the market. You can look at it from the retail point of view that things have to be shipped in and it's complicated to get it to our grocery stores. And then you've got to go to the grocery store and pick it out and pick out the good one. Don't get that avocado. It's too mushy. That's what Janie says. Got to get the right one. And uh, you could think of it from the perspective of the culinary point of view, like a little of this and a little of that, and it makes it really delicious and wonderful. And the kids will actually eat it if you do it like this. Or a biological perspective, right, digestive well, you may not want to think that one all the way through. <laughs> Jesus did actually in one story uh, go to the natural conclusion of that. But in all those things, it just gives us greater appreciation of what sits on our table, doesn't it? And today, I wanted to break down and, and look at this is God's will for us. This is what he's done for us. This is why we should live a life that's transformed. It's his intention that we move on beyond where we are. Nobody here needs to be in arrested development. We don't need anybody to stay a spiritual toddler their whole life. It's time to get upward and onward and grow with him, become more like him, and then we'll become more and more effective for the kingdom of God and we'll please him more and more. We'll live a life more worthy of what he's done as we grow in him. He's not done with you. You might think, man, I've done pretty good. I'm a pretty good Christian at this point. Well, there's still more. He's still perfecting us more and more until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, let's uh, stand together. Thanks for your gracious attention today. He wants us to be spiritually intelligent. He wants us to be morally excellent 
and relationally consistent. And so today, I just want to ask you, does Christ have your all? Is Christ your all? Have you trusted in him with with your whole heart? Are you living... Are you living um, spiritually intelligent, or are you kind of just wondering about and hoping that it comes to you? I want to ask you to be intentional about that. Maybe you need to say to the Lord today, God, I've, I've not taken my, my growth in terms of spiritual insight and intelligence. I've not taken it very seriously. I've not read my Bible. I've not been maybe coming to church and, and hearing the Word or spending time with you in prayer. Help me to be a better Christian in terms of my spiritual intelligence so that I can be wise and help lead others. Because when you're spiritually intelligent, you can help other people to know their way in God. And there's few things that are as rewarding as that. Maybe you say, man, I've not been living morally excellent. My life doesn't really measure up to the calling that God has for me in so many ways. And I'm not talking about how today you might find that you just, every once in a while you fall. I'm talking about maybe you've, you've just let go and you don't even think about the repercussions of behaviors. Maybe today we need to come back to the Lord and say to him, God, I want to live in a way that pleases you. Forgive me for being so careless. And the result of that will be that we will lead others. One of the things the culture hasn't seen in the church is moral purity. And that's one of our most attractive qualities. And when we get it wrong, they laugh. When we get it right, it's hard to argue. We need to be morally excellent. We need to be relationally consistent. Can you say today, my life is consistent with the fact that I have a relationship with God. Or do you find that those, those two things seem like they're inconsistent with one another? I would ask you to respond to the Lord today with a wholehearted surrender and say, Lord, I give you my all and I want all that you have for me. That would be an appropriate response. Let's bow our heads. We'll turn our lights down for just a moment or two. Our time is done, but... It would be great to spend a few moments at the altar if you can if you can afford it. Maybe today you've never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. You've never confessed your sins, repented of them, and turned to him with all of your heart. Can I suggest that you do this today? Would you really just say to the Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? I don't really understand all of this, but something inside is compelling me to say yes to you. Would you say yes to the Lord and begin that journey, begin that walk with God and see something change today? Trust in him. Trust in what he's done. Trust in who he is. He died for your sins and so that you could be forgiven and, and, and bought back from slavery to a way of living that's rebellious and against God. He's done all that for you. He did it for me. He's done it for all of us. The response needs to be, Lord, be merciful to me. I want to entrust my life to your hands. And with a prayer like that, you welcome Jesus into your life. And then all that was said here today of a true believer is true of you. Amen. With that, I want to open the altars if you'd like to respond, if you feel God calling spend a few moments with the Lord today before we go. Amen. I go back to the the house metaphor. I would like to ask you to open the doors. Open them all. Let Jesus in. Let him have access to every part. And there may be times it challenges us, but in the end you won't be disappointed. I don't know of anybody on their deathbed who ever said, you know, I really regret following Jesus. We regret a lot of things, but not that. So open up and let him be Lord of the whole house. Father, thank you for this uh, challenging word. And I pray that something of what's your heart in it would have gotten through and 
become a permanent part of our spiritual lives, Lord. Help us to be intelligent in our spirituality and excellent in our morality, consistent in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.